0: Hi, Steve Addison here for the Movement's podcast. Podcasts for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. We're going to be talking today to Craig Keener, who's a disciple and New Testament scholar. We'll hear a bit of his story, and then we'll talk about uh, what Luke was up to in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2 in helping us understand multiplying movements of disciples and churches.
1: I was uh, converted through some people who were out sharing Christ in the street. Uh, I had been an atheist. The Holy Spirit was working on me, but this was the first time I actually heard the gospel. So I argued with them for 45 minutes. You can't always <laughs> you can't always predict the outcome, based on what you faced at that moment, because they 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 thought I was nuts. Uh, I, I ran into them a year later, and they said we thought you were one guy who'd never get saved. And by then, I'd led ten other people to Christ. But about ten other people. So, but I went home. The Holy Spirit worked me over so much that I was converted like an hour or so later, and um, and then I I, I was. Just overwhelmed with the presence of God. That's what converted me. And then a couple of days later, I walked into a church, and the pastor asked me if I was sure I was saved. I said, "I don't know if I did it right." So he prayed with me again, uh, and it was pretty much what I'd prayed a couple of days before. But this time, I wasn't scared. I felt the same overwhelming presence of God, and I started worshiping Him. And I knew that I I could only I couldn't worship him enough unless he gave me the words to do it. And he knows lots of languages. So it started coming out in another language. I didn't know there was a biblical name for that, but Mm. it was pretty fun. Uh, And that was the kind of the beginning of my Christian life. But the kids in Sunday school knew more about the Bible than I did. So to catch up, I started cramming I found out if you read 40 chapters of the Bible a day, you can get through the New Testament every week or through the Bible every month. But as I did that, I also began to realize I had all these questions because there were things where the, the author took for granted that his audience understood it because they shared the same culture. The author knew their situation, but I didn't know their situation and I definitely didn't know their culture. And so that started me into a quest to get background. Um, And I think it was by the time I was in seminary, I began to realize how related this was. Uh, I I did a, uh, my my MDiv concentration actually was in cross-cultural ministry. And so, and at the time I was leading a, a congregation that was, um, and it was targeted for a particular culture and so i i realized how related this was that just as i needed to understand a culture that i was trying to reach the same way i needed to understand um, the, the way that the, the bible was contextualized for the cultures it was trying to reach and so rather than just taking everything there and, and applying it um, without understanding its original culture i wanted to make original culture available as much as possible so that we could go from like the principles in the biblical text uh, directly to to recontextualizing today and that's why I wrote the background commentary. I did a lot of street evangelism in the sense um, that's how that's how I was one to the Lord and I said wow everybody else needs to hear this good news I didn't hear about it before and so I started sharing the gospel with people at my school of course and on the way home from school that's where um, I had the biggest biggest fruit it was like half hour walk home and I'd be just sharing Christ with people on the way and a lot of people came to faith I really didn't know what I was doing but the Lord did mm. uh, <laughs> he made up for my um, my zeal without enough knowledge um, yeah and 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 uh, after I had started in, uh, I, I did my undergrad in a Bible college. After, after I started that, um, when I, when I'd come home for the summer, I would, uh, you know, I was, I was working to, to support myself, but the place where I was working, there were some apartments. And so I just started a couple Bible studies in the apartments after, afterwards. And I realized if I didn't need to go back to school, these could actually grow into something more, but I, uh, I, I did go back to school. I kept kept finding ways to to share faith on the on the streets. And again, it was it was the time I was in seminary. As I would be sharing Christ with people on the street, and well, I did my my ministry practicum in New York City, and with various different people groups there. And there were so many objections that people would raise that were coming from the culture, you know, something they saw on TV or got from their professors. Um, and and I realized I'd been equipped for these because of what I'd been trained in. But as as quickly as we were winning people to Christ, there were so many more people we, we weren't reaching who were being. Uh, led, I would say, astray by, by these false ideologies. And so I began to realize how useful my, my training was, and that's why I went on for a PhD, um, so I could, like, serve in multiplying labors for the harvest and training them. So I'm just wondering if we could talk a bit, just take one piece of
0: scripture, uh, the the whole story of, you know, Acts 1 and 2 and Pentecost, and could just discuss a bit um you know what are the lessons there uh for practitioners if you can imagine those listening are with you now what what would you share with them in terms of the insights from acts chapter one and chapter two?
1: Oh you you uh, practitioners you're the you're the heroes i'm i'm uh, honored to be able to to share with you that's uh I don't know if it's the right way to put it, but I feel like that's what I'm for, uh, if I can if I can serve, serve your ministry. In Acts 1 and 2, we see Jesus giving some more instructions to his disciples before he ascends. And one of the major instructions he gives to them is to wait for the power of the Spirit. So it's not something we can do on our own. In academia, we try to teach methods, but the Holy Spirit isn't a method; <laughs> it, that's, that's a matter of a relationship. So they were waiting, and, and we still see that on the on the day of Pentecost. They were gathered together in one place, and uh, back in Acts one fourteen, um, it it speaks of how they were praying together. So this this idea of them being in unity and praying together, it really fits a theme that runs through Luke Acts, Luke eleven thirteen. Jesus promises the disciples that if they ask the Father for the Holy Spirit, he'll give the Holy Spirit. And so we see in Acts, they're praying in Acts 1, God pours out the Spirit in Acts 2. They're praying in Acts 4, God pours out the Spirit in Acts 4. Um, Acts 8, they hear that the Samaritans have received the Word of God, but haven't haven't experienced the, the power of the Spirit. So... Uh, They come and lay hands on them and pray for them so they might receive the Spirit. Sometimes God just does it spontaneously. Nobody's expecting anything. But often it comes after a time of prayer. Now, it happens in different ways in the book of Acts. So we need to let God do it the way God wants to do it. And it's also important to realize that some places you're, you're breaking new ground from scratch, as opposed to sowing soil that's or, or watering soil that's already been sown, and so on. And I've noticed that even among different different people groups, in terms of ministering today, uh, and and certainly it was it was true in Acts too. that uh, and and they adapted their ministry to that. So, for example, in you know, Paul is is speaking. In a synagogue in Acts 13, well, of course, he's he's quoting scripture. It gives a good uh, biblical message, the way he was trained under Gamaliel. But in Acts 14, he and Barnabas are preaching to a farming community, and they talk about the God who gives us rain and fruitful seasons. Acts 17, he's speaking to the Areopagus, about a 100 um, people in the city council there, and many of them had philosophic training and he quotes from Greek poets. Uh, he's pro- he probably didn't know a lot about Greek poets. You know, the, the ones that he quotes, are those were in like the uh, Cliff Notes cheat sheet manuals. <laughs> but he he does what he can, and, and God works through it. And, of course, the, the signs and wonders throughout draw people's attention, uh, those, those are relevant in every place. But, but some people minister more in one way than in others. Um, Peter... And, and John, I mean, they do minister with signs and wonders. They're not uh, trained academically the way that Paul is, but Paul is able to minister in some situations they can't. Apollos can do it academically, but we don't see many signs and wonders with him. Uh, so, I mean, there are different different giftings, um, different emphases, and the breakthroughs come sometimes in different ways. But getting back to Acts, uh, Acts 1 and 2, it, as Jesus is ascending to the Father, he, he promises them the, the gift of the Spirit. He ascends, uh, verses 9 through 11, just like uh, Elijah ascended, and then Elisha received a double portion of his spirit. So uh, carrying on the ministry. And uh, then they deal with some organizational matters. They they had... Uh, Ministry failure among them, Judas, mm. and then and then coming to directly to Acts two. Um, when the when the Spirit fell on them, that was the major breakthrough. Now there had been sowing before that, uh, obviously a lot of it in Galilee, and by this point there are a lot of people uh, in Jerusalem, or at least the ones who stuck around of the five hundred who saw After he rose, Um, but there were at least 120 at this point people who had seen him alive from the dead, and obviously that that would uh, that that broke some ground. I'm sure word word some word had already spread, but then this breakthrough comes with the sign in in the uh, probably in the temple, um, which is where Peter ends up preaching. But it's you know there's God does something He does a breakthrough that gives Peter an excuse to preach to all these crowds in the temple. Um, it actually was an open area. I mean, in the steps of the temple, teachers would be teaching anyway. Uh, so they've,
0: they've come from the upper room, haven't? Well, what could it might have so been they, the upper room? Yeah,
1: probably. Yeah.
0: Uh, but of course, 3,000 people can't, they, they've flowed over into yeah. the streets. Yeah. Crowd is gathered, and I guess they've made their way to the temple courts where there's space for everybody yes. to hear.
1: That that was the only place where there was space. And um, mm. in, in most of the ancient Mediterranean world, in the, in the cities, you had public space, civic space, and the temples often took up a lot of that. Well, in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, I forget, it's something like a quarter or a a third of the whole city, Mm. and it would be really packed out at Pentecost, and this wasn't something that they had planned, but it was something that God had planned strategically, because this was one of the three major pilgrimage festivals, so the crowd is huge. And then uh, God gives some, some signs there, when the Spirit is poured out, you have a... The sound is of a rushing, mighty wind. This is the only time in the book of Acts you have that. Well, except the rushing, rushing wind when they're caught in a, uh, a gale in Acts 27, their ship is caught. But, um, but it, it has happened some other times. Uh, the the West Timor revival, they reported that, and then the um, the, the fire falling on them in uh, verse 3 of Acts chapter 2. Again, that's not something that. It recurs throughout the book of Acts when the spirit is poured out, although it has happened on some other occasions. The, um, the revival in India among orphan brides uh, in the ministry of Pandita Ramabai mm. in the early 20th century there were reported flames above their heads and so on. So um, sometimes God does that. But then um, what happens in verse four is repeated more often in the book of Acts. And I can I can talk about why that is. Mm. But it says, as they were filled with the Spirit, they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And that proves especially significant in Acts 2, because you've got some people gathered who actually recognize the languages. Mm. Um, and, and it happens a couple other times in Acts. And for, for a while, I, I was struggling with this, why, why does Luke emphasize this particular point? I mean, it from what I already mentioned, you know i I enjoy that myself, but why does why does Luke emphasize that? Mm. And I concluded, you know luke's emphasis there there are different ways the spirit ministers we read about in, in different different passages in the Bible. But Luke's emphasis on the spirit, acts one eight, you receive power when the Spirit comes on you to be witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they are. In Judea Samaria and the other most parts of the earth and so how how much more clearly could God symbolize on the day of Pentecost that he was empowering them for this mission to the ends of the earth than to enable them to worship God in other people's languages Uh, Mm -hmm. they didn't get it right away (laughs) they didn't understand his point right away Uh, but you know even when Peter's quoting Joel about all flesh and your sons and daughters, as many as the Lord our God shall call. And then what God's Spirit keeps doing in the book of Acts. I mean, Acts 8.29, it's the Spirit who says to Philip, go join yourself to this chariot. And we have the first Gentile Christian, this African court official. And then in Acts 10, uh, verse 19, I believe it is, the Spirit says to Peter, uh, "These, these people have come to you, in other words, from Cornelius, the, the Gentile centurion, these people have come to you, I sent them. So don't be afraid to welcome them. And then when the spirit falls on them, with, with the same evidence in that case, there's, uh, it's not always stated in the book of Acts, so I won't get into the, like, the debates about that. But when the spirit falls on them in a way that they can clearly recognize um that's, that's what Peter can use when he gets called on the carpet back with the missions board back home. And they say, you can't do that. You're going too far. <laughs> and he says, look, God told me to, and God gave them the spirit. What, what was I supposed to do? Mm. And even, I mean, it keeps happening. The spirit keeps forcing God's people across their boundaries until you get to 1528, when they say it seemed good to the spirit and to us not to require the Gentiles to be circumcised. And so on. So the, the the spirit was really pushing them forward in mission, and I think that's uh, part of the emphasis here. Certainly, here I mean these are Jewish people who are gathered in the temple, but Jewish people from every nation under heaven. And the the listing of the nations he gives reads kind of like an updating of the nations at the Tower of Babel. Uh, but you know, uh, you have you have a list of nations in Genesis ten. And after that, in Genesis 11, you have the Tower of Babel, where he gives a listing of the nations here, uh, but here also you have uh, this experience of other languages, but here God is giving it not as judgment, but to bring people together. And so you have a foretaste of where the mission is headed already there on the first day. God cares about uh, cross-cultural, cross-linguistic, reaching people where they're at, and so then Peter goes ahead and, and preaches preaches the gospel. He's preaching to a Jewish audience, so he he can be explicit in quoting scripture. And uh, I don't I don't I don't want to like take too much time on this, but he I mean the gospel he preaches is the essential gospel, and it's also presented with a scripture argument that would really work for a first century Jewish audience. The way he connects. Uh, the scriptures is is just brilliant, and then uh, people ask, "Well, so what must we do?" He's, he's told them about Jesus, the resurrection. So he he calls them to repent, to to be baptized, which was a culturally intelligible, understood way of communicating people converting from one way of life to another. When Gentiles would convert to Judaism, they would they would be immersed in water. So there, there was a
0: little bit of a fence in it, in the sense. Oh,
1: yeah. Of, Telling Jewish why people. Why does do a Jew this. need to be yeah, exactly. baptized? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Because it yeah.
0: was just for Gentile converts.
1: Yeah. I mean, Jewish people had regular washings of, mm. of various kinds, but this kind of once for all that symbolized a turning from an old way of life to a new way of life, Jewish people mm. used that for Gentiles converting to Judaism. mm. And, and so the, the
0: rushing wind, the fire, what, what are they symbolizing?
1: I, well, there are a few Old Testament passages that, that can be related to the, to the rushing wind. People might think of Genesis 2-7, where God breathed in the animal breath of life. But especially, I think, they would, and they might think of you know, the uh, kind of weather phenomena at, at Sinai, uh, it, different theophanies, um, Elijah, you know, the, the the wind, although it was really in the still small voice that he heard, he heard God, but especially I believe it would be Ezekiel 37 verses one to 14 where the spirit, um, when Hebrew ruach can mean spirit, wind, or breath. And mm-hmm. so God's uh, God's spirit comes like a, a wind and revives the dry bones and God raises the dead. Um, and, and, and gathers his people. So it would it would signify that, what like Peter when he explains what's happening, he says in the last days, says God, uh, and then he goes on to quote Joel. Joel doesn't say in the last days, but in the context, it's also eschatological. It's it's future oriented, and in the fire could could be seen the same way, es- especially uh, for Jesus followers, uh, or people who'd heard John the Baptist preaching about. Uh, the, the coming one who baptized in the Holy Spirit and fire. Mm. Uh, Old Testament, again, theophanies and, and eschatological or end-time judgment. You know, so here it's not a bad thing, but these things reinforce the idea that that a new phase in God's plan mm. is breaking into history, uh, the already side of the already not yet of the kingdom.
0: And and what tongues is... Um, doing is it's it's helping to propel them because the disciples start in acts one they they want to they want an end times uh sort of time chart and um, they they want to know when's it all going to be finished and and they have to learn no this this time is about ends of the earth there's a job to be done and yes. so the gift of tongues is sort of helping them see this is a this is going to push out to the ends of the earth yes. um is, is that how how you say it
1: i think so i mean hebrew was considered a holy language uh, being from lower galilee they probably could speak uh, a mixture of aramaic and greek but what god does on the day of pentecost it's not like there's one specific holy language you have to have it's like god is for all languages god is for all peoples Mm. and and And, that's something again developed throughout the book of acts
0: and and you know the they're all speaking in tongues they've all got the fire upon them peter says you know this is about sons and daughters this is about uh servants Mm -hmm. or slaves and old and young so it's also saying you know the spirit is for everybody For this worldwide mission, you know, I mean, later on, we called that the priesthood or ministry of every believer. Is that, is that also part of what's going on? That it's not just the 12, but everybody's mobilized now.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's, it's total mobilization. Um, Now in in Joel, it was, um, it was clear. There were three, three classes that were represented um, when, when he says all flesh, he, he goes on to say, uh, sons and daughters, and, and uh, male and female servants, so both genders, and it's your male and female servants, so it's both free and, and slave, and of course young and old, as you mentioned. Now in Acts, it changes the wording a little bit. Uh, it, it's it's a translation that's a little bit free to, to get across some points, but uh, it's it's God's servants, male and female, so uh, the, the, you know, it really transcends class barriers because as long as somebody's God's servant, it doesn't matter what their what their status is. And the sons and daughters, both being empowered. I mean, you see that in Luke Acts. I mean, in Luke chapter two, you've got Simeon and Anna. Uh, Anna's a prophetess. Simeon uh, speaks through the power of the Spirit. You you also have uh, in Acts eleven. Of course, you have Agabus as a prophet. But in Acts twenty one. You have uh, Agabus, who by then is probably a, a fairly old, old prophet, and the four virgin daughters of Philip. And that language normally would suggest they were probably teenagers or maybe younger. Mm. So, uh, and actually Jesus' disciples probably were, were teenagers too, most of them. Uh, that's the usual age for disciples back then. So uh, nobody's too young and nobody's too old. And it's not based on gender or anything else. Mm. Oh, and, and, and also mm-hmm. the Samaritans. When the Samaritans receive the Spirit, and this is, this is a really dramatic point because, I mean, given the Jews and Samaritans regarding each other kind of as heretics, you know, and can't trust their theology and so on, then Philip comes and the Samaritans receive his message, but they haven't yet received this experience of the Spirit. And so, uh, the apostles send Peter and John to go lay hands on them so they can receive the Spirit. But in light of in light of Luke's emphasis, you should be witnesses. Mm. Them laying hands on these Samaritans soon after their conversion is is saying you're to receive the power of the Spirit. Mm. You're to be witnesses. You're our partners in ministry. So it's not uh, paternalistic. It's it's partnership. And you know, of course the Jerusalem church has things to contribute to them, but they also can reach their own culture more directly. And yeah, just mm. what and this the same with the spirit being poured out in the Gentiles, that God God will take people even from the start, even, even as new believers, and give them the spirit, the same spirit he's given us, because it's God who does the work, you know. Again, we want to contribute what we can with teaching and whatever, but um, Mm. but we need to trust God's spirit especially.
0: So uh, 3,000 turn and believe, and there's a lot of uh, water in Jerusalem for ritual washings, and so baptizing's no problem. Yes. But they're added to their number. So Pentecost is the birth of the church that becomes the Yes. So the source of all churches um, and 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 we finish out the chapter and Luke describes that church what what can we learn from his description
1: it, it looks to me like in 241 to 47 actually what you're talking about with the numbers being added verse 41 and verse 47 bracket that section at the beginning uh, 3,000 are added to their number and at the end, it says, and people were being added daily to that number. The difference is the 3,000 that came in at the beginning, that was Peter's preaching. But the ones coming in at the end are coming in because they see the transformation in, in the lives of the people there. And so verses 42 to, I guess, the beginning of 47 describe that, how they're they're meeting together. And that, well, Like the Gospel of John says, you'll know, you know, they'll know you're my disciples by how you love one another. Um, they're, they're meeting together. They're sharing meals together. They're uh, sharing in, the, in learning the apostles' teaching. They're sharing and praying together and worshiping. Uh, they actually have a, they're, they're the, only, the only place in the Roman Empire where you actually could have anything like a megachurch was the Jerusalem temple, because you can't use the pagan temples for that, but also from house to house. And I'm sure a lot of growth is taking place that way in the in the different neighborhoods and so on. But right in the middle of that section, verses 44 and 45, you have this replicated at the second outpouring of the Spirit. You have people, believers, who are so serious about their faith and so committed to one another as disciples that they're actually sharing their possessions with those who are in need. And that's a theme that runs through Luke's Luke's Gospel, and, and um, you have some hyperbole there, but but here we see how it's actually lived out in practice. That God's Spirit transformed them so much; they lived in such a radical way, serving Jesus, and the church kept growing from there.
0: Mm-hmm. And then uh, I, I read just recently; I think it was Eckhard Schnabel. He's he's listed forty six names of people we know were uh, a part of the life at some point of the church in Jerusalem. And you can see how this, this church didn't stand still. Almost immediately the gospel's going out from them and churches are being planted in Samaria and, and Galilee and uh, Judea and and members or participants in that Jerusalem church end up going to the ends of the earth. Um yes. And so something about how it became a multiplying movement. What what do you see in, in Acts and, and the epistles that, that evidence that?
1: Oh, well, wow. oh, we could go on for a long time on that. Uh, Eckerd, by the way, is great. He's a great scholar and, and godly man, uh, my, my friend. But in in Acts, of course, you have these, um, these believers who gathered from from different parts of the world. Jew- Jewish people have gathered. So you already have um, somewhat multicultural element in the cosmopolitan center of Jerusalem, more than you would have had in Galilee uh, in, in, in most respects. I mean, in terms of people coming from different places. Um, so in, in Acts 6, though, that comes to a head because there's a minority group within the church. And these are probably especially Diaspora Jews who settle in Jerusalem, who only speak Greek. They don't know Aramaic or, you know, can't communicate in Aramaic. And what the church does is really extremely unusual in terms of ancient movements, because usually in antiquity, if, if a minority group mouthed off too much, uh, the government would silence them <coughs> uh, by whatever means they saw fit. Um, but instead, they empower the, this movement, uh, this minority movement, because sometimes the minority, the cultural minority within the church, maybe the nucleus of tomorrow's, you know, dominant church even. And mm-hmm. so they, uh, in Acts 6, they choose seven members from this Greek-speaking minority. And even though some, some Judeans and Galileans had Greek names, uh, even in Rome, they didn't all have Greek names, but in this case, all seven of them had Greek names. They were not just members of the minority; they were very conspicuously members of the minority. But uh, but there was another criterion. It wasn't just that they were members of the minority. They had to be people full of the spirit and wisdom. So they were they were trustworthy servants of God, but they also represented this minority movement uh, and. And pretty soon, God started using them in dramatic ways. Stephen lays a lot of the theological groundwork for it, and then uh, Philip ends up carrying it out. Although it should be noted that the scattering geographically wasn't so much voluntary; uh, it came through persecution, uh, and Saul was leading it. So he was, in a sense, uh, <laughs> um, God was God was using their persecutor even to back then. To multiply the church and and we see That many of the people uh, From Jerusalem were people from Cyprus and Cyrene. So maybe like Simon of Cyrene um, and uh, Barnabas who was originally from Cyprus That that they went abroad and they get to uh, Philip goes to Samaria and then God sends him uh, to to intercept uh, an African court official in the wilderness, wouldn't wouldn't have dared done it in Jerusalem, because that's where the persecution is. But but then we also see a a number of them who aren't named, but God was using them, uh, start sharing the faith in cosmopolitan Antioch, which had a large Jewish community, but it also had, as a cosmopolitan center, it also had a large number of Gentile God-fearers and proselytes, and, and you already saw that among the seven in Jerusalem uh, Greek speakers. One of them was a proselyte from Antioch. So you, you already can see where the narrative is going. And um, and so by the time that Barnabas gets uh, Saul to help with that, because he already knows about Saul's calling, uh, they're, they're able to help equip and teach the, the church that's already growing there through avenues for communication that already existed within that cultural framework,
0: mm. and so there's this inner dynamic um, yes. that's always bursting out. That, you yes. know, be- begins in you know, wait, don't do anything till the spirit comes. But soon as the spirit comes, they yes. overflow onto the streets, and it's as though this thing's away now. Um, yes. It's it's a work of the spirit. It's also God's dynamic word. It just radiates out, doesn't it?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I'm just wondering where do we where do you see that today? You're there at, at Asbury, and you've got many students coming in. I imagine from around the world. Where yes. are you seeing the Book of Acts and these? Things play out in in the world today. Are you getting some sense of that?
1: Yeah, I I love. Uh, I, I was working on a book about miracles, and I loved interviewing uh, some of our international students because a lot of them had stories. In fact, a lot of them were converted through that, and uh, also hearing about them planting churches in so many places, uh, in India, of course, and. Uh, Indonesia and m- many parts of Africa. I have some friends in Mozambique who, just their ministry there has exploded. Again, with persecution, that often that mm-hmm. often comes with it. But just lots of lots of parts of the world. Um, one one brother uh, Bal ba- Krishna, Dr. Bal Krishna Sharma, shared with me that in Nepal, something like eighty percent of people who come to faith in Christ, it's through healing or deliverance and um, Many many similar figures from from many other parts of the world, especially at the beginning I have have one friend. He told me about um, a colleague with whom he worked who's who's now passed away, but uh, the colleague was um, Before they became colleagues had been a, a shaman in his village, but contracted leprosy and so was cast out of the village And then uh, a couple of believers came and prayed for him. Nothing happened at that moment. But that night he had a dream in which an angel touched his hand. He woke up, found himself completely healed, went into the village, the entire village became followers of of Jesus. And by the time my my friend, uh, my my former student got there to, to work, half the region had become Christians. And so God is, God is doing this in a lot of, and again, it's not like a one size fits all God. Uh, I mean, in a lot of movements, people labor for years. And then the breakthrough comes because it takes time to learn the language takes time to learn the culture. You know, a lot of the places Paul went, I mean, it, they were Greek speaking and Paul already knew the the Roman world somewhat. And so uh, and he went in as a tent maker, well, a leather worker, whatever, whatever that means in Acts eighteen three. There's debate on that, but he uh, he he was able to move within the culture, and so I think sometimes we see things happening more quickly. But even there, I mean, you've got this mega church in Jerusalem, and Paul's just going around starting these we'd call them like home Bible studies <laughs> in different parts because they were house churches in different in different cities, but they grew. And, and, you know, by by the time, uh, by the year 66 or 67, the handwriting is pretty much on the wall for Jerusalem and the believers leave there. Who would have known 20, 30 years earlier that the future actually lay, the immediate future actually lay in the diaspora? We can't predict that. But God's Spirit knows, and so when He sends us places, we can trust that He knows what He's doing, and we break ground there. One one waters, one one sows, another waters. God gives the increase, but the increase is astonishing to us. You know that um, Jesus also gave the the parable of the four soils, or the parable of the sower. You know and three of the types of ground they didn't they didn't bear lasting fruit but the kind that did way more than made up for the kinds that didn't and that's that's what we see in acts not everybody not everybody welcomed the word some actually opposed it but the the seed wasn't sown in vain there was power in the word itself the the, the good news the message itself that uh, the Spirit of God used to bring forth the fruit. And uh, uh, those who were carrying the word, their mission was to follow follow this commission and uh, follow the, the Spirit's leading.
0: You can find uh, Craig's books and uh, free resources at craigkeena.com. This has been Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast.